sharing about. Wouldn't you agree? Um, last night, as I was just uh, marinating on the message for this morning, <clears throat> I ran across a video, and um, I wanted to share it with you because I was so inspired by it. Is that okay? Um, it, there, there's somebody in this video that you might recognize. So, uh, Norman, if we could get some sound to this, that would be awesome. And here we go. Hey, ma'am. Here you go. Nothing? Okay. Here you go, brother. Check it out. There's great information in there. You know what? When you realize what God has done for us, how can you not do just a little bit for Him? You know what I mean? And this, the news that God will do but for you. All right, man. All right. The things that God has done for us is so amazing. And we got to just share that information with everybody. Everybody needs to hear the good news. I am a, I'm a street, a sheet metal fabricator, seven to five-ish job. So I have the evenings that I can spend doing ministry and doing stuff with my church. And I have the weekends completely free. I never have to work on Saturday. Here you go. And uh, so that's really important to me that I never have to work on Saturday because that's a Sabbath. Uh, that's the first thing that I do anytime I look for another job is I talk to this interviewer and I say, look, first things first, I'm not working on Saturday regardless because that's my religious holiday. It's my Sabbath. If that's going to be a problem, then, you know, we'll part ways. No harm done. So God always blesses with the opportunity to, uh, to work without having to work on Sabbath. I'd already used up all my vacation time, and uh, and I was I kind of go from check to check almost. So I didn't know if I could take off the time and and I'd have the the uh, the funds to pay my bills. And then God reminded me that <laughs> every time I need something, every time I step out of faith, He's there for me. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. So I decided I was going to do it, and like right after I decided that I was going to do it, he reminded me that I had some money coming that I wasn't expecting that was going to be outside of my normal income, and uh, I was pretty sure that it would probably cover my bills. So my only next hurdle was to find out from my boss if I could get the time off since I already took a bunch of time from my vacation. And uh, so I go in and I talk to my boss. I'm like, look, I, I need to take like 10 business days off here, and, uh, and he's like, well, well, what for? And you just take some vacation. I was like, well, I already took my vacation, but uh, I still need to go. And he's like, well, why do we need to go? I was like, well, check it out. We're going to go to San Francisco, and we're going we're gonna to fill that town with literature about God. So a million glow tracks that we're going to pass out in 10 days. And... Uh, he happens to be a Christian himself, and he told me, wow, a million, huh? That's crazy. Well, for that kind of a reason, we will make it happen. You got it. You can go. It's just some uh, pamphlets on uh, health and some other good stuff. But no, everybody's got to hear the good news. Otherwise, we're never going home. This place, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And we are the workers. He's, he's asked us to share the news because it's got to reach everybody. The inner cities, the big cities, the small cities and towns, everybody has got to have a chance. And so that was what we're doing. Every little bit makes a difference. Every little bit. We never know what these little things will do, how it will change somebody's life. So if we can just change one person's life, in these 10 days, it's totally worth it. One, one person for the kingdom. Amen. Yeah, so there's 40 missionaries right now. Maybe more because, I don't know the, the final count, but there's 40 missionaries right now who are hitting the Bay Area with 
one million glow tracks. Um, people are going to be heading out there to watch a big game tomorrow, but hey, they, they don't know that light is coming their way. <laughs> praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I tell you what, today we are beginning a new sermon series called Three Angels, and uh, this is based off of the passage in Revelation chapter 14, so that's where we're going to stay all month long. Um, but the reason is that this world is in darkness. It's in desperate need of light. And I want to pray. I want to pray for those missionaries, but I want to pray for missionaries right here who are planted in Modesto, who are planted in this area. Maybe you're visiting from out, out, out of Modesto. And I just want to pray that we would be the kind of missionaries that God can send. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we are in desperate need of light ourselves. Apart from you, we have nothing. And yet you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. In Ephesians 5, it says that we are children of light. Lord, we pray that today, as we study, as we open up the scriptures, as we, we see these prophecies, maybe familiar, maybe, maybe unfamiliar, that you would lead us to embrace your commission for these times. Lord, maybe, maybe our, our journey is such that, that we have no idea what, you, what commission, what, what mission lays out in front of us, but we need to hear just the gospel story itself. And so, Father, wherever we are, I pray that you would shine light into our dark hearts today. Please, send us your Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Revelation. Revelation chapter 14. Friends, uh, I'm inspired by people like David. Uh, I think Erica is out there also. Maybe you know a gentleman by the name of Kenny Fluence. He is out there too. Actually, there's a really awesome video on him too. You can find that on Facebook. But um, the truth is that God has called not just those elite, not just those few. He has called all of us. He has called all of us. And in the book of Revelation, beginning in Revelation chapter 14, uh, we, we see this vision of how God has appointed, heaven appointed, a heavenly appointed message for these times. Before we get to this passage itself, I just kind of want us to get a context of, of where we are. When we open up to Revelation, we're about halfway through the book, a little bit more than halfway. Revelation is a book that if you have not studied, you will have a chance to study um, beginning February 19, all the way to March 5, Discover Bible Prophecy, mark it on your calendar. That's your shameless plug for the, the last half of the program here. Anyways, <laughs> um, just wanted to say, hey, if, if you are interested in what in the world is God up to, what in the world, how are we supposed to navigate through the situations of, of these times? Friends, come. Come to Discover Bible Prophecy. If you have friends that are asking those questions, if you have neighbors, if you have family members, give them the flyer. Bring them out. Bring them out. So start marking it on your calendar, February 19. Anyways, we're getting to Revelation 14. And Revelation 14, obviously it comes on the heels of Revelation chapter 13. Bright, bright Bible students here. Amen. But I want us to recognize something, that in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13 is, is really the drama of Satan's end time scheme to bring humanity down. Revelation chapter 13 actually depicts two, uh, in vision, it's two beasts, two entities, two powers that the devil is using to, to sway humanity's allegiance away from God and to himself. And the sad thing is that he does it so deceptively that as people are giving allegiance to Satan, they actually think they're following God. This is the dark, dark picture of Revelation chapter 13. And yet, if you look at Revelation chapter 14, there's a gloriously bright picture. Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. When you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the who? The Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So this is a picture of Jesus sitting on a cloud. He's got a crown, which means he's the king of kings, and yet in his hand he's a, he's a farmer. 
okay? In his hand, there's a sharp sickle. In his hand, he is ready to reap a harvest. That's, that's my son, by the way. So, <laughs> just want you to know, he, he enjoys preaching too. <laughs> but in his hand, there, there's an instrument that he is ready to harvest something. And in this, verse 15, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap for the what has come. The time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Do you know what this is depicting? This is depicting Jesus' second coming. And what is he looking to reap? Is he just wanting some good wheat from the California Valley? You know, No, no. He's looking for you and me. He's looking for people who are ripened for his soon return. So watch this. Watch this. So Revelation chapter 13, dark, dark picture. The whole world is actually swayed by, by Satan's schemes. And then at the end of Revelation 14, there's this glorious picture where the, world, where the world is ripened for the second coming. What in the world? How does that happen from dark to light. What's in the middle? There's a people with a message. Did you follow that? That which bridges the darkness and turns into the glorious day of Christ's soon return is actually a people with a message, and those messages are commonly called the three angels' messages. Friends, if you ever have heard that phrase and you're like, what in the world are the three angels' messages? Well, what was the big deal of the three angels? Let me tell you what the big deal is. The three angels' messages are the fertilizer for earth's harvest. Maybe I'll say it like if you're a chemist. The three angels' messages are the catalyst that actually ripens people for the soon return of Jesus. So check this out. If the three angels' messages are not given, the harvest never ripens. Do you follow that? If the three angels' messages are not given, the harvest never ripens. Jesus may have his sickle in hand, but the time will never come. That's heavy. Is it safe to say that the three angels' messages must be given, yes or no? Yes! Okay? My hope is way beyond the blue, okay? And if that hope is ever to be turned into reality, the three angels' messages must, must be given. But here's the kicker. In order for the messages to be given, they must be understood. (laughs) In order for the messages to be given, they must first be received. You and I have no ability to give what we have never, ever received. And so this month, we're going to sit the three angels' messages and say, what in the world is this about? How can I receive, understand these messages? How can I receive these messages? How can I embrace these messages so that I can actually give these messages and be a part of catalyzing the soon return of Jesus? Anybody want to study? Yeah, let's do this. Okay, so Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. It begins in verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. By the way, Revelation full of symbols. And here, whether or not it's a literal angel, uh, we don't have to debate about that. But the point is this. Angel simply means messenger. And this messenger is from heaven. And he's flying in the midst of heaven, meaning he's bridging the gap from this dark picture to the glorious picture. Heaven is saying, look, 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 there's something wrong here. Let me reach Heaven is going to reach. And so this angel flies in the midst of heaven having something special. What is it? Do you see it there in verse 6? Having the everlasting gospel. Gospel. When you hear gospel, what do you think of? What is it? Message. Good news. Yeah. Maybe someone thinks of some songs. I don't know. Uh, when, When you think of gospel, what is it? The truth, the truth, awesome. Literally, in the Greek, the Greek word is euangelion. It's actually the word angel with the word good in front of it. Good angel, good message, good news. 
The historical context, the the Greek word was used for describing those messengers who had come from the front lines of battle to report to the king that his army just won. And so this angel is really bearing some good news, saying, hey, look, there is a victory that the king of kings has won for you, and he's preaching this to those who are dwelling on the earth. In Romans chapter 1, actually, let's take a look. Romans chapter 1, keep a bookmark here in Revelation. Go to Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and if you're taking notes, go ahead and start getting your pen moving. We're actually going to go to a lot of different verses. We, uh, we may not be able to look them all up, so you can write them down to read them later. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Actually, verse 16 and 17. When you're there, say amen. amen. All right. I hope it's okay. Uh, We're going to have to move very quickly here, I just realized. Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Bible says, here's Paul, he's writing, and he's telling us about the gospel. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. One, the gospel is something we do not have to hold back. Why? He gives us the reason, verse 16. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. According to this verse, what is the gospel? It is the power of God for what? For the salvation. Salvation of just a few? Of all. All who believe. All who exercise faith and trust in Jesus. And then in the next verse, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's not not my righteousness. It's not your righteousness, because truth is, Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. I'm thankful that that doesn't have to be revealed. The gospel says, no, it's it's God's power to save, and in that, his righteousness is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just, that is, those who are righteous, shall live by, what's the next word? Shall live by, this is the gospel. This is the everlasting gospel. It's God's power to save. It's the good news that the messenger brings saying, hey, the king of kings has spilt blood. Victory is now yours. And who is this gospel going to? Flip back to Revelation 14. This angel that's flying in the midst of heaven says, having the everlasting gospel, this is Revelation 14, verse 6, having the everlasting gospel To preach to who? Do you see it there? Those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The target audience of this preacher's message, of this everlasting gospel, is everyone. No one is left out. And it specifically, it just says, well, maybe not so specifically, it says, to those who dwell, where? On the earth. On the earth. What's interesting is that in this context, those who dwell on the earth have a serious problem. We already talked about it. Revelation chapter 13, actually just flip back a few verses. In chapter 13, verse 8, notice the description of those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 13, verse 8, do you see it? It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship, and then my Bible says, will worship him. Unfortunately, In this context, him is not Jesus. Him is actually the beast. Uh, The beast, if you're familiar with these symbols of Revelation 13, this is actually the Antichrist. This is not just the enemy of Christ. This is the one who's posing as Christ, substituting for Christ. So that when people worship him, they're actually thinking they're worshiping Jesus. And yet they're actually giving homage to Satan himself. All who dwell on the earth, apparently at the end of time, They're worshiping this entity. Their names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So this angel of Revelation 14 says, there's a serious problem. The only solution is the everlasting gospel. Do you follow that today, friends? You know this world is messed up, right? (laughs) You know this world is messed up. And, and, and this world has many things to offer as band-aids for those problems. But the truth is, healing only comes from the everlasting gospel. 
This, this is the target audience. The, these are people who are worshiping the beast. Now the question is, what in the world is that beast? Yes, you know, there may be a historical fulfillment, a prophetic fulfillment. Some of us may have studied these prophecies comparing Daniel 7, you know, Daniel 8, and all these things with Revelation 13. And, and we've said, yeah, oh, whoa, historically speaking, there is an entity that actually fulfills these very things right to the T. And if you don't know what those things are, come to discuss. Okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> That's the point, yeah, no. Come to Discover Prophecy because you'll be able to understand that in more detail. But what I want to get at is this. Though we may be able to identify the historical fulfillment of who this Antichrist power is, we need to understand that at principle, at principle, the beast is actually a representation. It's a representation of putting man in God's place. Did you hear it? Feel free to write it down if you need to. The beast, the Antichrist, is simply sin that is institutionalized. It's putting self, it's putting humanity in the place that God alone should be. In other words, it's putting trust in humanity rather than divinity. Okay? And so the reason why I say this is because sometimes we think, oh, I'm glad I'm not worshiping the beast, because all we're thinking is a historical fulfillment, an entity, a power. I don't affiliate with that. I'm not following that. Yet, at principle, we still have the beast residing in our hearts. Dun, dun, dun. Right? <laughs> if the beast is a symbol of that which puts trust in man rather than trust in God, friends, this is something that concerns all of us. That's why the Revelation 13, 8 says, all who dwell on the earth. All who dwell. Uh, last time I checked, I dwell on the earth. <laughs> all who dwell on the earth worship him. In other words, all of us, anytime we, we, we choose God, I mean, sorry, we choose self over God, anytime we trust in our own rather than God's, anytime we, you know, God said, but I'd rather. Friends, that's worshiping the beast. Do you follow that today, yes or no? Yeah? And that's sobering. That's sobering to me because that means I need the everlasting gospel. If ever we come to a point where we don't need that. <laughs> well, I won't even finish that sentence. That's okay. <laughs> we all do. Anytime we choose self over God, anytime we put self in the place of God, we're, we're only going to be led to death. And so the gospel is given to you and me. This is the everlasting gospel. When heaven sees that, heaven cannot sit still. When heaven sees that kind of dark picture where all the earth is following after that trend, that tendency to trust in self rather than God, heaven does not sit silent. Heaven reaches with the everlasting gospel. And in verse 7, Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, it says it with a loud voice. I love that. In the Greek, it's megaphone. <laughs> you like that? This angel is preaching with a megaphone voice, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. This is what the everlasting gospel sounds like. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Let's take this phrase by phrase, because if this is the everlasting gospel, if this is what you and I need, then we need to understand this, and we need to receive this. So what does it mean then when he says, fear God? Fear God. You know, a few, few months ago, actually, we actually did a little study on what it means to fear God. And, and uh, we, we won't go through that exhaustive study right now, but you can pick up a, a sermon audio from our, our website. I think it's Giving God Our Best, Part 4, so you can take a look for that. But when the Bible says fear God, there's actually a very, uh, a very large or broad understanding of what that really means. The best place to go is usually the first time that word or phrase is ever used. So go with me to the book of Genesis. Keep a bookmark here in Revelation and go to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. 
Anytime you're trying to figure out what, what is the meaning of this word or what is the meaning of that phrase, you try to look for that word, you try to look for that phrase in other places of Scripture, particularly when you're in Revelation. When you're in Revelation, you want to see what the Old Testament has to say about Revelation because out of the 404 verses in Revelation, nearly 270, some say nearly 290 of them are actually quoting from the Old Testament. So if you're ever wondering what in the world is Revelation talking about, compare it to the Old Testament background. And oftentimes the very first mention of it will set the tone for its meaning. So are you in Genesis 22? Yeah, Genesis 22. This is the story of a man named Abraham. Does anybody recognize this story? This is Abraham. He's being tested. God has just asked him to sacrifice his son. This is the son that he has been waiting to have for, for, for nearly decades. God has promised this son to him, and Abraham's like, what? How, how am I supposed to offer my son Isaac to you? God, you're supposed to fulfill the promise of having many descendants through this boy, through this one. And Abraham, full of faith, he actually walks forward with the instructions. For three days, Isaac and he and a couple of their helpers of the household, they're, they're walking to a mountain that God is going to show them. It ends up being Mount Moriah. Isaac and the boy, they, actually, he's probably not just a boy at this time. He's probably in his 20s, 30s. He, he's, you know, he, he's a strapping young man. And, and Isaac and Abraham, they go ahead and start walking up the hill. Isaac says, Dad, we're here to sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice? <laughs> They're carrying wood. They've got a torch for fire and stuff. Where's the sacrifice? And they keep going. Abraham's confession at the time is, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And eventually what happens? Abraham shares. Isaac is willing to be bound on the altar. And in Genesis chapter 22, look at verse, uh, let's see, verse 12. Thank you. In verse 12, sorry, starting in verse 10. Let's start in verse 10. Genesis 22, verse 10. The Bible says, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. With knife in hand, hand raised high, the angel stops him. Abraham says, here I am. Verse 12, it says, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you, what? Fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. What does it mean to fear God? Not withholding anything from God. To fear God doesn't mean to you know, tremble and shake and, and be afraid or terrorized by him. No, 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 that's not what it's talking about. To fear God is to relate to him in such a way that nothing is held back from God. Abraham knew what it was to fear God. The angel is saying to these people who are dwelling on the earth, he's saying, fear God. God is the one who provides. Hold nothing back from him question is, where does this kind of, uh, of loyalty come from? It's not like it's a switch that we can just turn on and off and say, okay, now I fear God. <laughs> where does it come from? Where does it come from? In Psalm 130, verse 4, go ahead and write this one down. Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist says something very insightful. He says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is praising God. He says, oh man, I'm so glad that you do not mark iniquities because with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Check this out. Fearing God is a response to being forgiven. Fearing God is the response to the gospel. And so this angel is preaching the everlasting gospel and part of that is the the first appeal is fear God. Fear God. Why? Because hold nothing back from God because God has held nothing back from you. Don't withhold your son, your only son from him because God has not withheld his son, his only son for you. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So going back to Revelation 4, actually hold your finger in Genesis because we're going back to Genesis in in a little bit. So 
That's just a sneak peek. Okay, Revelation 14. He says, fear God and give glory to him. Give glory to him. How do we understand what it means to give glory? There are lots of verses, lots of verses that we could go to. But because we've just been talking about Abraham, I, I want to keep talking about Abraham. Because <laughs> Abraham knew what it was like to give glory to God. Go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we'll start in verse, I believe it's verse 17 to 19. Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is actually using the example of Abraham to describe what faith is like. Obviously, if Abraham walked through shoes like that, we can, we can learn a thing or two about what it's like to have trust in God. Romans chapter 4. If you're there, say amen. Okay. Romans chapter 4. I'm sorry. We're going to start in verse 19. Verse 19. Paul is talking about uh, God's promise to Abraham that he was going to have a son, that he was going to bear many children and things like that. And in, in verse 19, uh, it gives us a recognition that Abraham was a man of faith. It says in verse 19, it says, And not being weak in faith, he, speaking of Abraham, did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay, so get this. Abraham is a hundred years old. Sarah is 90 years old. God says, you're going to have a son. What? <laughs> By all intents and purposes, his body is, quote-unquote, dead. Like, there, there's no possible way that could happen. But in verse 20, it says, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving what? Giving glory to God. Check this out. Giving glory to God is synonymous with trusting that what God has promised he is able to perform. Did you hear it? We give glory to God when we actually lean on him to provide what we ourselves are dead and unable to provide. Go with me to an Old Testament passage. An Old Testament passage because there was somebody who wasn't trusting God. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I hope it's okay that we're like traveling all throughout the Bible today. Um, when you're studying Revelation, that, that's kind of the tendency. You want to understand what Revelation is talking about? Read the Bible. <laughs> okay, Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. This is the Old Testament. This is, uh, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. Joshua chapter 7. When you're there, say, I found it. Joshua chapter 7, there's a story of a man named Achan, okay? This is, uh, this is after Jericho, if you remember Jericho and its, its hefty walls, Jericho's walls fell down. Uh, Israel was commanded to, to go ahead and, and, and basically clear house. And, and Israel was instructed specifically not to take anything from there, not to keep anything to themselves. But there was one man named Achan, who actually thought different. Well, maybe God doesn't really care if I do this or that. And as, as the children of Israel move on from Jericho and they, they attempt to, uh, to, to, to overtake this next mission, which is a smaller city, uh, the city of Ai, they are defeated. They are brought to their knees. Joshua is like, what in the world? We, we just conquered this huge city. And then this little, what, what's going on? Joshua is upset. God says, hey, there's sin in the camp. There's sin in the camp. By the way, sin, it renders us powerless. I don't know if you realize that. And so there's this process where God says, hey, hey, let, let's get this sin out of the camp. Someone's holding on to something that I've expressly said not to hold on to. The people of Israel are given a chance. Nobody fesses up. And so God whittles things down. Let's cast lots for this tribe. And out of this tribe, whoa, okay, it's this tribe. Uh, out of this tribe, let's cast lots for this family. And so out of this family, let's cast lots for this household. And it narrows it down to Achan. Achan had all this time, probably the whole day, to say something. But, but God pointed it out himself. And in Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 19, Joshua is brought to his knees. He's like, Achan, what is going on? And in verse 19, the Bible says, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, 
Give glory to the Lord God of Israel. So what is the appeal of Joshua? I beg you, give what? Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Follow this. To give glory to God in this kind, this is actually the first time give glory is ever used in all of scripture, by the way. To give glory to God is to lay all things bare and say, I'm completely honest with you. If I'm clinging to something, I'm going to tell you. To give glory to God is to stop clinging to anything that is accursed. To give glory to God is to stop clinging to anything that the word of God has expressly said you don't need in your life. By the way, the thing that Achan held onto, it was a special garment from Babylon. He was hanging on to Babylon. We'll talk about Babylon in weeks coming. And so Achan is brought to his knees, and Achan's story isn't all that encouraging, honestly. But the point is this, he had an opportunity to give God glory by making confession. So here's the thing. When we cling to sin, when we cling to that which is accursed, we are robbing God of glory. But the moment we let it go, the moment we confess, the moment we take God up on the promise of 1 John 1 verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, in that moment we give glory to God. Why do we cling to sin? <laughs> Why do we cling to those things when we know we're not supposed to? Why do we cling to things, things that God cannot bless? Maybe, maybe at times it's because we don't think it's a big deal. You think Achan kind of, oh man, no one's going to miss this. <laughs> it's just a tree, you know, <laughs> Adam and Eve. It's just a piece of fruit. Uh, for some people, it's just a day, you know, whatever. <clears throat> Why do we cling to things that we know that God cannot bless? Sometimes we don't think God thinks it's a big deal. Sometimes we think that God doesn't care about it. Or maybe, sometimes. Sometimes we cling to things because we don't think God can do anything about it. What's what's your closet sin? What's your cherished sin? And I heard it right, it's a trust issue. The things that we cling to are things that either we think that God doesn't care about, or God can do nothing about. And we don't bring them to him. You've been dealing with that for years. Why should I give this to him? I try, but then I go back again. Why should I give this to him? The moment we do, we give glory to God. And like Abraham, we're trusting that he's going to provide what I cannot manufacture myself. In that moment when we fully trust, trust enough to confess, trust enough to lay hold of the promise, we give glory to God. And so the angel says, fear God. Hold nothing back. Give glory to him. When you do, you're going to give him the chance to be glorified in your life. You can't manufacture righteousness. You can't manufacture deliverance, but God can. (laughs) Stop clinging to it. And the rationale in Revelation 14, verse 7, fear God and give glory to him. And the next part of that phrase, it says, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. It's recognizing, hey, there's no time to lose. It's referencing the fulfillment of prophecy from Daniel chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 10. The hour of his judgment is come. There's no time to lose here. Why wait? Why wait? Withhold nothing. Cling to nothing. Lay it bare. Make confession to God. Allow him to to have the glory of saving you. (laughs) Fear God. Give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come. And the last part of, of this first angel, it says, Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. When the angel with the everlasting gospel says, Worship him, What is the angel really saying? (laughs) Is he saying, um, you know, uh, set up a praise band and and sing sing 10 minutes of songs? What is he saying? 
Go with me again to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. The story of Abraham once again helps us understand what this first angel is talking about, what the everlasting gospel experience really is. Genesis chapter 22 actually has not just the first time fear God is mentioned in scripture, it actually has the first mention of the word worship too. Genesis chapter 22 verse 5. When you're there, say I'm there. The Bible says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. There is an element of faith. Abraham said, hey, we're going to come back to you. Somehow, after I kill this guy, we're actually going to come back to you. Hebrews chapter 11 actually says that, that it kind of inferences that Abraham thought that God was able to resurrect him somehow. And he is, by the way. And so here, Abraham says, okay, guys, we've been traveling for three days. I think this is the mountain where we're supposed to do our business. All right, so me and Isaac, we're going to go there and worship. When Abraham says, we're going to go and worship, he's not thinking, singing Kumbaya. When he says, we're going to go over there and worship, he's saying, we're going to go over there and give everything I've got to God. We're going to go and surrender all. We're going to go and leave it all out on the table. And somehow we're going to come back when we're going to come back. I want you to hear this. This is kind of a companion to the appeal to fear God. You know, fear God says, hold nothing back. And then worship him says, okay, don't just do the negative, do the actual positive, okay? So hold nothing back and then worship him says, now actively lay it all out on the altar. Worship that is anything less than all out and all in is not worship at all. Please don't be fooled. God is not mocked. We may worship and still not worship. Do you follow that? We may gather for worship and truly never experience worship because we're still holding back. We're not giving all. Don't fool yourself to think that you can half-heartedly Give yourself to God. Saul, you remember Saul? He, not, not the Saul of the New Testament, but Saul in the Old Testament. He was the, the first king of Israel. Samuel was so proud of this guy. He anointed, oh, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. This is, this is the icon for the nation of Israel. And Saul, he was a good guy. But there was a specific command after a few years of administering and, and just ruling and stuff. After a few years, he kind of began to trust more in himself than, than in the word of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is given instruction to, 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 to execute a group of people whose iniquity had filled to the brim. And God gave specific instruction, nothing left behind. Saul actually comes back with uh, the best of the Amalekites' flocks. Saul actually comes back with the king himself, with Agag, as like a prisoner of war, saying, hey, hey, this is my trophy. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel comes up and says, hey, what, what's this noise I hear? It's the sound of, of animals. And I, I thought God said not to bring anything back. And, Sam, and Saul says, well, well I, I wanted to use them to worship God. And Saul in, uh, in Samuel says it in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Did you follow that? <laughs> to obey is better than to sacrifice. Your forms of worship mean nothing if you are not fully, wholeheartedly obedient to the God who has called you. <sighs> worship that is anything less is not worship at all. To worship God is to, is to give all in active form, in obedient life. It's to live all, only all for God. Do you want to worship God? 
I tell you what, just like fearing God, fearing God doesn't just happen at the flip of the switch. Worshiping God, surrendering all, that doesn't happen at the flip of the switch either. Uh, a couple of verses you can write down. Exodus 4, verse 31. Exodus 4, verse 31. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. All of these, or both of these, are specific examples. In Exodus, the children of Israel, uh, they're, they're slaves, and they hear that God remembers them and that God is going to deliver them, and it says when they believed that, they worshipped. <laughs> In other words, it was hearing the good news of God's deliverance that inspired them to surrender all, to worship. Do you understand that? Worship, we don't say one, two, three, worship. <laughs> When we hear and see the goodness of God, that's what leads to worship. Worship is never my imagination. Worship is God's initiation. It's a response to what God has done. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's great mercies, offer your lives as living sacrifices. And the NIV, it says, and this is your reasonable act of worship. It's all in response to God's mercies. All in response to God's mercies. And so, in Revelation 14, verse 7, the first angel rounds out his gospel message and he says, Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. The rationale for worshiping God, the rationale for giving all to God, is because he made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And I want to, before we close here today, I, I want to recognize that this is actually really key. That's not just like a tag on. That's not just saying, oh, worship him. You know who I'm talking about, uh, the one who created. Right? It's not just an afterthought. Recognizing God as creator actually is the foundation for worshiping him. When we don't recognize God as creator, we have no reason to worship him. Actually, if you look at the scenes of worship in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, those scenes of worship are actually inspired by, whoa, this is the creator. And that creator is my redeemer. Worshiping God as creator, or recognizing God as creator, it gives credence to the appeal to fear him, to give him glory, and to worship him. If we fail to appreciate God as creator, we have no reason to do those things. So the everlasting gospel, the first angel, it actually reveals that the very one who created us is the one who also shed blood to save us. Think of this, that the creator took on the form of the created so that you and I could become a new creation. Did you hear that? <laughs> the creator took on the form of the created to make you and I a new creation. And that's why we worship. Is it any wonder that the very things that point to God as creator, like the Sabbath day, are things that are thrown out of humanity's memory? Is it any wonder that Satan has targeted specifically the day that recognizes God as creator? Why? Because when you have no creator, you have no reason to worship. Is it any wonder that our schools... You know, uh, not just public schools, but even, even our own schools are struggling to identify God as creator. This is, this is not just like, eh, you know, this is Satan's scheme. And so if you've ever wondered, if you've had serious questions about this, last plug, I promise. <laughs> There's a creation seminar that starts this Wednesday. I'm serious. This gives reason to worship God. This gives reason to trust God. When we refuse to recognize, oh, well, I, you know, that's a nice story in Scripture. No, Scripture has something to say about your origins. If it doesn't have something to say about your origins, it has nothing to say about your future. Okay, all right. <laughs> the first angel. It's the everlasting gospel. It's the all-time gospel. And it happens to be the end-time gospel. It's the gospel of God's power to save everyone who believes. And when we hear this gospel, the automatic appeal is fear God, give glory to him, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. What's the practical takeaway? The angel has already said it. <laughs> fear him. 
Withhold nothing from him. Give glory to him. Maybe there's something you're clinging to because you don't think God can do anything about. Test him out. (laughs) See how much glory your life can give him. It may be that secret sin. It may be that troubled relationship. It may be that past, that memory, whatever it might be. Give glory to God. Fear God. Give glory to him. Worship him. Lay it all out. (laughs) Don't settle for on-the-fence relationship with God. Don't settle for half-heartedness, half-baked Christianity. God has given all. The only proper response is to give all to him. And so the angel says it best. Do you want to receive this gospel? Do you want to fear God? Do you want to give him glory? Do you want to worship him? Friends, there may be somebody today who's saying, yeah, that's my recommitment today. There may be somebody here today that's, this is heavy. This is first time. I, maybe I've heard this from a kid, but I've never actually done anything about it. This, this angel's message is actually calling me to a different life. Friends, don't, don't let any time pass. Today is the day. Today is the day. So if you desire to fear God, if you desire to, to give glory to him, if you desire to, to worship him, Friends, it's not about saying, okay, I have the will to do it now. Like we said, right? It's not a flip of a switch. It's hear the gospel. This is God's power to save. And when you do, respond in this way. Fear him. Give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth, sea and springs of water. If that's your desire, friends, if you want to respond and say, yes, I want to receive the first angel's message. I want to to respond to that and say, yes, yes, yes. If that's your desire, I want to ask you, Will you show heaven that desire by just standing to your feet and saying, yes, Lord, I want to receive this gospel. I want to receive, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you see, just by the the visual, the active standing upon our feet, we desire to respond to the first angel with an affirmative. God, but we know that apart from you, we cannot even do this. And so, Lord, what we're pleading for is the power of the Holy Spirit to work in such a way that you live out a response of obedience through us. God, when we look at the life of Jesus, he lived a life of fearing you. He lived a life of giving you glory. He lived a life of worshiping you. And so, Lord, what we're asking for is that Jesus would take residence in our hearts and that his obedience would be lived out in us. God, please. Please save us. Thank you for your power to save everyone who believes in Jesus. God, we're we're leaning on this today. We're asking that it would demonstrate itself in the life Whatever we're withholding, may it not be so anymore. Whatever we're clinging to, may it not be so anymore. God, we want to worship you. Surrender all. In Jesus' saving name we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. And as was mentioned,